With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Our Common Ground. It is Alternative Activist. Empowerment Talk Radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Welcome to Our Common Ground. This is talk radio that matters, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and with me tonight at Our Common Ground is my co-host, Alpho of the Alpho Show. Good evening, Alpho. Good evening, Janice. How are you on this Saturday evening? Well, we've certainly had a very busy news week. And before we get started tonight and talk about the African Holocaust, which was the greatest continuing tragedy the world has ever seen. We want to mention a couple of things that happened, uh, Alpha, during the week. Uh, One of them is that uh, our common ground, and I'm sure I'm expressing your sentiments as well, Alpha, uh, joins the nation in wishing well and sending many prayers and well wishes to the victims of the tornadoes which hit and devastated parts of Alabama and Missouri this week. We also want to uh, note that this week on Thursday was the birthday of the fabulous Duke Ellington, and we want to note the death of the wonderful vocal artist Phoebe Snow, and we underscore the coming out of the closet 
of the Donald of NBC. And um, those are things that were uh, pretty much might have passed through because of the continuing crisis, the continuing collapse of leader, political leadership in this country. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we're going to be focusing on the African Holocaust. Our guest tonight will be Minister Abdul Salam. He is the minister uh, and representative of the Lost Found Nation of Islam under the leadership and guidance of the Honorable Silas Mohammed. Uh, and the nation of Islam will be celebrating the life and legacy of our forefathers who endured the unspeakable horrors of slavery. Uh, and he will be joining us live in our second hour. But we have decided tonight that this is a teachable moment for our audience and for us to revisit the African Holocaust and the issue of reparations, which we will be talking with Minister Salam about. It was almost the most impacting social event in the history of humanity. It reduced humans with culture and history to a people invisible from historical contribution, mere labor units, commodities to be traded. And in this first hour, we want to put the why in the context of the now, the African Holocaust, reparations, and why we must never forget, and how it fits into today's political dialogue. From the MAFA, the racial social hierarchy was born, which continues to govern the lives of every living human being, where race continues to confer or obstruct privilege and opportunity. And in the 21st century, the legacy of enslavement manifests itself in the social economic status of Africans globally. And that includes Africans in America. Without a doubt, Africans globally constitute the most oppressed, most exploited, most downtrodden people on the planet, a fact that testifies to the untreated legacy of slavery. And in this first hour, we're going to go inside of what the African Holocaust means to us. It was hellish. It was horrific. Um, these were people who were crammed into the belly or the hull of, of a ship. You're shackled. Generally, women and children were separated from the men. They were stacked like books on a shelf. They were stacked methodically. They would pack the slaves in, one after another, in a uh, usually a three-foot-high area, um, shackled and chained by their wrists and their hands, and their, their, in some, some cases, even their necks. The 5,000-mile journey from Africa to the colonies of the Caribbean and America could take as long as three months. So they're lying in their own excrement. They are subject to tremendous uh, diseases. These are 
journeys of torture. During the first quarter of the 18th century, European slave traders shipped more than six million Africans across the Atlantic to be sold into slavery. We must return to our history and culture until we recover and reconstruct the best of our history and culture and use it to enrich and expand our lives. We'll always be impoverished and our youth will suffer as a result of that. We must leave a legacy worthy of the name industry African. Pay reparations on my soul. This is our common ground. Tonight, Black Holocaust Day of Remembrance, 2011, and reparations. Thank you for being with us at Our Common Ground. Stay tuned. into the context of or try to wrap the issue of how many slaves I, I I think there are very few people who really know how many slaves what dates how many ships what kind of slavery there was in Africa who were the beneficiaries of this great transatlantic uh, commerce. If we understand that, if we understand our role in exactly how we contributed to building the infrastructure of America, then we really can begin to construct how race plays a part in our lives today the contribution, the attributions in which a legacy of slavery plays out on the streets of our urban cities every day, the way in which religion plays its role in both our suppression and oppression every day, the way in which slavery and the legacy of slavery. How many of you out there really think about what today has to do with then. And how many of you have been able to get past the injury of this legacy in order to calculate your value to the building of the greatest nation in the world? I don't think that's a question that many people pose to themselves. But let's look at Today, where are we? We're going to hang in with that, uh, so to speak, <laughs> metaphorically. With, uh, uh, with, uh, you have to be careful. Perhaps we need to consider, is this just because they're black that they're in prison? Or could it be because they didn't want to work hard in school? Is the fact of who his base is. His base is made up of people even more vile than he is. I mean, you've got... 
you you've got the genuine. I mean, you've got a lot of it is just walking human debris uh, on on the Democrat base side, and they've got to be stoked. That bunch of people, those savages uh, uh, that make up the Obama base, are fit to be tied. He had to get them back, and the one way to do it is to go out and savage us. That's what they love. That's what they get off on. That is their orgasm, because these people can't find willing mates. Back to the question of what it means to be white. I think what it means to be white, in part, is that uh, you have the privilege of blaming people of color for their own victimization under white supremacy. I've heard you say that to me. I've heard you say that to him. I've heard you say that to him. I've heard you say it to him. I've heard you say it to uh, every person of color in the room who challenged your perception of yourself in the world. That is part of what it means to be white. Maybe that's part of the answer, that we feel that the field is wide open and each man can stand on his own. No, no. We, each man does not stand on his own. Some men stand on other men and other women. Light-skinned men. Men from Europe stand on the heads and the hearts of men and women and children of color. That is, and of course, you, uh, you also stand on the, uh, the, the heads of white women. But no, it's not a question of every man standing on his own ground. All of the ground, damn near, of this planet has been taken from almost all of the people of color on this planet. Australia was a black continent. Africa was a black continent. North America was a red continent. South America was a red continent. You are not standing on your own ground. You are standing on red ground. And that's what it means to be white. To say that you're standing on your own ground and standing on somebody else. What do the four major Fox News-only stories of the Obama era have in common? The four major stories pressed and pushed relentlessly on Fox over and above the facts as their own make-up-the-news cycle you wish you had narrative that they want to pin on the Obama administration. What is the same about these four ginned-up Fox News-initiated would-be scandals? Van Jones, Acorn, the new Black Panther Party, and Shirley Sherrod. What's the same about these four stories? This isn't about racism. This isn't a story about picking on black people. This is a story about political outcomes, about the tried and true political strategy of not targeting black people, but targeting white people, targeting white people, white voters or white would-be voters to feel afraid of black people, to feel afraid of African-American people as if they are not fellow Americans, but rather a threat to what white people have. They're coming for you. It's a zero-sum game. If they get anything, that means you lose something. The message is a... There is a quote that is attributed to Gandhi um, that probably was not said by Gandhi, but I don't know who did say it. So since everybody thinks he said it, he's maybe still the best reference. <laughs> In any case, uh, it goes like this. First they ignore you, uh, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. I always found this um, very inspirational as a kid who felt like I was always going to be part of the uh, world that at best would be laughed at and, uh, and a typical day would be ignored. The idea, being, the idea was that, that this is how you as an outsider, you as somebody who is initially dismissible, you can eventually, if you are persistent and if you do your work well, you can achieve great things. You can, in fact, defeat the people who would dismiss and laugh at you and fight you. We are seeing right now the reverse of this. 
we are seeing quite literally this process playing out backwards with the presidency, this historic presidency that came about because of a brilliant and country-changing campaign. So this is, the, this is the Gandhi quote backwards for this presidency. First, in this case, for this presidency, first, you win. This presidency was not a culmination of a grand career in politics for Barack Obama. He was catapulted to the presidency by the brilliance of his campaigning and by a country that desperately wanted something dramatically different from what we'd had before. So first, he won. Then they fight you. Then, after he won, they fought him. My grandmother used to start the story, show me your papers. That's what the police officer said to Major Blackett, her great-grandfather, when he was just 19 years old. Major dug into the trousers of his wallet, patted his jacket, but he couldn't find his billfold. Sir, I done left my wallet, he said. But before he could finish his sentence, the young man was posted against the brick wall, cuffed, and taken to the St. Louis City Jail. Unable to prove his identity, he would spend the next 21 days in a cramped, musty cell. That's where his older brother Matt found him. He had been beaten and was bloodied. Matt returned with Major's employer later that day, wallet and identification card in hand. They needed to post bond, and the police officer needed to see a white face. The year was 1899, and Major Blackard was my great-great-grandfather. The real crime was that Major Blackard was a man of color living in America in 1899. This morning, when I initially got, you know, the first notification that the president was having to produce his long-form birth certificate and passing it out, you know, by White House staffers, it recalled a really ugly time in history for me. It recalled a time when men of color, when black men specifically, weren't allowed on the street without identification. And here we are with a president of these United States duly elected by the people of this America, he's being asked to produce his papers. And not just his birth certificate, they've gone on to ask for his college transcripts. Never in our 235-year history have we ever asked a president to prove that he was born on this American soil. Good morning. In a stunning show of unchecked ego, Donald Trump quickly hosted a press conference. He took credit for forcing our president to hand over his birth certificate. The sometime real estate developer, socialite, author, and television personality went on to caution onlookers to let the experts examine the documents as if the president were perpetrating a fraud. Trump didn't even want just the birth certificate. He wanted the president to release his college transcripts. His implication is that Barack Obama was the beneficiary of affirmative action and that he took the place of a more qualified white student. Apparently, graduating magna cum laude from the nation's most prestigious law school and being named editor of the Harvard Law Review, the institution's highest student honor, is just not enough for Trump. But you see, for people like Trump, it never is enough. If he gets on the phone or gets off his uh, basketball court, or whatever he's doing at the time. I mean, he should be focused on OPEC and getting those prices down. As if his place was better on the basketball court. When they tell you that this isn't racial, don't believe them. This controversy was constructed solely as a way to delegitimize the presidency of a black man. Those who question the location of Barack Obama's birth 
are clearly the same people who would pack up and move out of a neighborhood if somebody like me moved in next door. They are the same people who would believe African Americans are better suited on the basketball court than in a boardroom. When they say they want to take their country back, they mean from us. Goldie Taylor's full article in response to this presidential press conference today is posted at thegrio.com. Heavy with us tonight. Reverend, I'll ask you first. Uh, if this had been a white president, would we be seeking his birth certificate the way they have been doing this on President Obama and the workover that we've seen for two and a half years? What do you think? Frankly, I don't believe we would. And I don't think it is just the birth certificate, though clearly that has gone way, way out of bounds. And the media coverage, the saturation day and night has been appalling. But now we've also gone to questioning whether or not he was qualified to go to the schools he went to, even though he graduated uh, uh, from Harvard as the president of the Law Journal, something that you don't get other than to earn it. He graduated top of in, in his class, in the top uh, uh, circle of his class. I think that uh, then you've got people questioning whether he is what they call a Christian. It's this whole sense of your other than uh, American, that too many people, uh, African Americans uh, clearly, but even Latinos and women in some cases, and anyone other than them, white, wealthy males, have to prove themselves worthy. It's a sense of entitlement. Prove you are one uh, of the yeah. Americans. And I think that this is appalling and is not the kind of America that most Americans want. And I thought that was indicated in the 08 elections. I think it's sad that we had to come back to this. And I think that the president did the right thing, but it's sad he had to do it. Professor Dyson, will America recover from this? Will, will, will we move forward from this or will this always be here? Well, the stain of white supremacy and the legacy of bigotry remains with us. The malignant persistence of the vitriolic and vicious denunciation of Mr. Obama. Don't forget, uh, a week ago we had a Republican official presenting a picture of Mr. Obama as a chimpanzee. So not only is this, as Reverend Al Sharpton has brilliantly expressed, uh, a way to otherize him, to make him other than American, to make him un-American, it also questions his humanity. So skepticism about black intelligence and questions about black humanity are at the heart of what it means to be an American as well. We try to pretend that this other side is the shadow side that has been really relegated to the margins of our society, but every now and again, things like this remind us that these are major currents that trace beneath our lives together. We talk about e pluribus unum, out of many one, many different ways, diverse understandings, divergent ethnicities and races and religions that characterize us at our best. Here is a man, Barack Obama, as brilliant as they come, as smart as any president has ever been, as articulate as any man has ever been to occupy that office, as well-trained and well-educated, and yet uh, well-mannered, well-behaved, civil. He has not been defensive or nasty or vicious, and yet this man has been brought to the bar, so to speak, to prove his humanity. He has been put up on the rhetorical auction block of Republican slave thinking, to be made yeah. to appear again as a victim to be examined to see if he's worthy or not 
of the legitimacy that they can confer. And the question is, what legitimacy do you have to confer upon Mr. Obama, uh, Donald Trump? Yeah. Here's, you know, so, so I guess, Ed, I think this is a problematic situation, and I think it does reveal the American character. And unless we are able to put this into proper perspective, we have to indict ourselves as well as the Republicans. Reverend Sharpton, uh, what do you say to the Republican Party? You saw those sound bites from leadership, Boehner, Cantor, and of course, Michelle Bachman, who continually puts herself into the news media, into the news cycle. There's this, you know, don't, let's not go too far. Let, let, let's make sure that we still stoke this fire a little bit. They will not unequivocally set the record straight, and they will not tell other members in the Congress on their side to get rid of these ridiculous birther bills. What does that say about the state of politics in this country with all the evidence where it is right now? See, I think the latter of what you said is what is most troubling, because people have the right to say what they want. The question is, now you're going into legislation. You have actual state legislations, that state legislative bodies that are entertaining legislation on birth of bills never happened before in American history. You have the governor of Louisiana saying, I would sign it. Never happened before in American history. So we're not talking now about free speech. We're talking about people engaged in legislative distractions in states that are dealing with deficits, in states that are laying off workers, that are disrupting families, where we're dealing with gas prices that are going up with serious problems, and they want to entertain this that they know is complete folly, they would rather engage in the politics of distraction than to really lay out in front of the American people their solutions. Yeah. And I think that where I charge the media, I ran for president. I've been an activist all my life, but when I ran, I had to lay out what was my health policies going to be? Where was I in education? We did debates on conservation, on energy. We had to deal with the issues. No one has said to Mr. Trump, he's in New Hampshire today, well, where's your policies on bringing down the gas? Where's your policies on the economy? You claim you built businesses. How would you deal with the deficit? He's not being uh, uh, confronted with these questions. He's allowed to duck by going through these non-issues, and it's been going yeah. over and over again. It's time to tell them to put up or shut up. And, and, and Professor, you're on a college campus at Georgetown, shaping the next generation. What kind of an impact do you think this has on young people when they see this, this hatefulness unfold in the media and compelling the president with all these falsehoods to come out and take the high road, but try to redirect the focus of the country. What kind of impact do you think this is having on the 20-somethings that you deal with? Well, I think it's an object lesson in uh, the invidious politics of inference, trying to imply, trying to suggest that he's less than, he's not equal to, the strange algebra of bigotry. I think that they will see again clearly that their generation bears a responsibility and a determination to be better than those who came before and to suggest that the birther movement, the Tea Party movement, the questioning of the legitimacy of an American citizen, this should not happen to any human being. And no other president has had to be subject to such vicious calumny, assault upon his very reputation and his identity and be brought like a little boy before the school classroom to prove that he didn't stick the gum underneath his desk. 
I mean, this kind of, and we're allowing a very few to determine what the masses of people do. I think that all good Americans of conscience should speak up and say, enough of this already. We must move on to the serious business. We've got uh, enormous inflation. We've got to deal with unemployment. We've got to talk about health care policy. We have to talk about two and three wars. We have to talk about drones in Libya. We have to speak about uh, education. We have to speak about the central issues for which we hired the President of the United States of America to do a good job. And if he is distracted, as Reverend Al Sharpton said, by these lethal tendencies of a few people to elevate themselves as the grand leaders of yeah. America without paying attention to the powerful currents of democracy, what we are sullying here is not simply one man's reputation. We are sullying the very reputation of democracy. And and, and finally, Reverend Sharpton, you know the president well. Has he been personally affected by this? I mean, I've not talked to him about it, but I would assume that anyone, especially with children, that has to go home every night and their children constantly hearing on every newscast the question of whether they are a citizen of the country that elected them to lead it. When do you become a part of America? You go to the schools, you educate yourself, you lift yourself up, you win an election overwhelmingly, yet you still don't belong. That would have to affect anyone. And what bothers me, I think the president is a tough man, I think the first lady is a tough lady, but what bothers me is young Americans of all races that look yeah. at this and say, when does everybody count? When do you have to stop proving who you are in order to excel in this country, even after you win the presidency of the United States? That's the shame of this issue. More than 100 million Africans were uprooted from their original homeland in Africa and brought to the Western Hemisphere in shackles and in chains. They were forced to build America's infrastructure and the foundation upon which it stands. It was their slave labor that built the white man's heaven we call America. It was their blood, sweat, and tears that were shed in the cotton, rice, and tobacco fields. They were worked before sunrise in the morning to sunset in the evening during slavery, cotton, rice, and tobacco fueled Americans' economy. It created this heaven on earth for white America. And it is only fitting that we should honor their long suffering during slavery, their long suffering during the transatlantic slave exposition, our forefathers' ability to overcome enormous odds prove that they are a great and resilient people. And today, we continue to see the legacy of slavery and its injury, its effort to remove our humanity in the events just recently in the political landscape. We thank you for being with us. You're listening to Our Common Ground. In this first segment of Our Common Ground, we try to lay the foundations from which all African Americans in America should be thinking about the issues of the black holocaust, the black 
Holocaust Day of Remembrance that is going to take place on May 1st, 2011 in Washington, D.C., and the issue of human rights and reparations owed to American to African Americans and to reparations owed to the stripping of our motherland. I'm Janice Graham and with me tonight our host Alpho of the Alpho show. We're going to take a break and when we come back we'll have more. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were all meant to shine as children do. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same as we are liberated from our own fear. Our presence automatically liberates others. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child you of God. You are a child of God. You are. And your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine, as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us. It is in every one of us. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Who are listening to Our Common Ground? I'm Janice Graham. Thank you for being with us. You know that the ice cream scoop can make a child smile, and that by slowing us down, the traffic light can keep us going. You know that the lawnmower makes life easier, that the blood bank makes life possible. But did you know all these ideas came from the minds of African Americans? Support the United Negro College Fund, because a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Visit uncf.org or call 1-800-332-UNCF. Brought to you by UNCF and the Ad Council. Who will pay reparations on my soul?
Thank you for being with us tonight. You're listening to Our Common Ground. And that was Gil Scott Herring, Reparations, Who Will Pay Reparations on My Soul. Thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. You never know what you're going to get when you get here because it is on Our Common Ground. Uh, We've got a chat room full of people, and for those of you who are listening and who would like to join with our chat community, you can do so by coming to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG, and this is our common ground. Alpha, I, you know, one of the things that um, that I, I, I wanted to bring us to this point tonight, this is, uh, I had a spark of a teachable moment there, Brock, uh, Brother Brock, uh, because I don't think that we can place our Africanness, our injuries, from a holocaust i mean most of the time you talk to people and they just don't connect black people don't connect to their legacy of not only slavery but the transatlantic slave voyage and one one of the things i want to do before we talk about the Black Holocaust Day of Remembrance when Minister Abdul Salam of the Lost Foundation of Islam joins us at 11 o'clock. I want people to be thinking and understanding the depth of our own experience, what we are experiencing now, the African-American president, the people wanting a country back, people who want to get states' rights to repeal some of the civil and human rights uh, that we have gained in this country because they, Goldie uh, uh, Taylor is so right. When they say they want their country back, they're talking about us. Uh, Hello? Let me say this, and I've said it before. Releasing this birth certificate, I think, was one of the one of the biggest, I would say, the worst moves of his presidency. Well, you know, the thing is that it wasn't just about him. And I wrote this uh, uh, on on uh, in response to him getting this long birth certificate. It wasn't about him. And he had no right to do it because he he. As my mother would, and my grandmother would say, he jugged us in the in the in the painful place, in the unhealed place. Like I said, I think this was one of the worst things, one of the worst decisions of his presidency, and I'll hold this decision that he's made out, because what it has done. You're right. It scratched the scab off of a wound that is still trying to heal, and now it starts all over again. This mm-hmm. lends credence to what these teabaggers, what these uh, birthers, this has been a two and a 
two-and-a-half-year campaign on the part of these bigoted racists. And I use the well, term bigoted racists. Well, there's another, there's, another, there's another part of it that I want to underscore, and I don't disagree with you, Alpha. There is another part of this. Does he not understand that in my lifetime, Sammy Davis, Bill, Bill Cosby, uh, Count Basie, um, New, uh, Joe Lewis, um, Muhammad Ali, when they came into southern towns, one of the first things that their people had to do was to get a pass that they would put in their pockets so that if they were caught alone by themselves at night in the wrong places, they had their pass, and the man would say, show me your papers. That's exactly what Goldie Taylor was talking about. I understand. And exactly. he affirmed and validated a very vile and ugly part of our history. And maybe he didn't get the lesson in Hawaii. Of but in Cambridge, not. Massachusetts, on the campus of Harvard University, when I was a student, you had to show somebody some papers because they stopped all the black people to ask them, why are you here? Do you have permission to be here? Wellesley police officers stopped me regularly on Main Street to ask me why I was there. I didn't look like a maid. And I you couldn't possibly have been a student, so why was I in Wellesley Center? This man has no idea what he did this week. No idea. Alpha, we're we're really pressed for time because uh um Minister uh Salim is going to be joining us right at the top of the hour. And we do have a caller, and I'm going to ask the caller to make the point real quick because I do want to get through some history so that you understand what this black holocaust is all about and you have some informed basis for, from which to think and talk about reparations. 610, you're on the air. I respect you. And, of course, I respect you right back, Brother Brock of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Brother Brock Hotep. Hotep to you and yours, as well as uh, the other uh, host, household, and the rest of the Blog Talk family chat room. And I will keep it brief. Looking forward to learning some uh, history concerning the uh, reparations movement. Uh looks like uh, part of the reparations of Philadelphia has a chapter, had a chapter, and we were on the move somewhat. We were fairly strong. We were attending rallies and protests, and it was on the front page of of, uh, of our minds here in, in Philadelphia. Uh, this was when John, uh, Congressman John Conyers was spearheading uh, H.R. 40, and uh, we went to uh, Washington, D.C. several times to back that uh, proposal. never became a bill. And it's set in uh, committee for umpteen years, and it seems like once he uh, moved to the side on that issue because he's been fighting for so long, nobody picked up that ball politically. And um, a few years later, 
President Barack Obama was elected, and now we hear nothing at all about it. So um, well, I'm thinking that it's lost, off, not lost, but definitely has been uh, Brother Brock, I don't think it's, it's – I don't think it's uh, – I, I appreciate your comment and understand the, the uh, frustration and disappointment around it. But we're going to talk with um, Minister Salam about what he and Minister Silas Mohammed and, and Minister Najee Mohammed have been doing on the international front about reparations. Uh, the U.S. Um, Human Rights Network is also on the job. Uh, there are a number of organizations across the country that are still trying to figure out the strategies around getting the discourse, the public discourse, uh, on H.R. 40 uh, on the table in, in the United States and also getting it addressed at the U.N. And what I want to ask you to do is to uh, give us a call back if you have a question and if you want to engage him in a discussion about uh, both the future as well as the past of the issue of reparations. Okay. Talk to you later. Okay, thank you, Brother Brock. Alpha, we're going to go into this first uh, uh, clip on the transatlantic uh, slave history. And um, I think that it will help our audience have a discussion with the Lost Found Nation of Islam on the issue of both reparations and the Day of Remembrance. During the first quarter of the 18th century, European slave traders shipped more than 6 million Africans across the Atlantic to be sold into slavery. It was hellish. You're shackled. It was horrific. Ships were going from Britain to America, um, or from Britain to Africa and the Caribbean and the American colonies. It was starting to become quite crowded out there. In prime position on America's eastern seaboard, Cape Cod was a focal point for ocean-going trade. It was placed perfectly in the middle of the major ports of Boston, Providence, Newport, and New York. At the beginning of the 18th century, these were hubs of maritime activity. After months of preparation, the widow was ready to set sail. She was packed with a cargo of trade goods. The widow was built in London in 1715 as a slaver, a ship specifically designed to transport captive humans from Africa to sell as slave labor for the growing colonies in the New World. She was named after the town of Ouida, an infamous slaving port on the west coast of Africa. She was a fast three-masted galley, weighing in at 300 tons and equipped with a main armament of 18 powerful cannons. The widow was a top-of-the-range slave ship. In 1716, she left from London, bound for the west coast of Africa, on the first leg of her triangular journey. It was her second voyage around the trade triangle, and she was captained by veteran slave trader Lawrence Prince. He purchased approximately 500 slaves to fill the widow's hold. Then, having signed for his captive human cargo, Prince set sail from Africa, across the Atlantic, on the notorious Middle Passage. It was hellish. 
It was horrific. Um, these were people who were crammed into the belly or the hull of, of the ship. You're shackled. Generally, women and children were separated from the men. They were stacked like books on a shelf. They were stacked methodically. They would pack the slaves in one after another in a uh, usually a three-foot-high area, um, shackled and chained by their wrists and their hands, and their, their and some some cases even their necks. The 5,000-mile journey from Africa to the colonies of the Caribbean and America could take as long as three months. So they're lying in their own excrement. They are subject to tremendous uh, diseases. These are journeys of torture. Slave ships like the Widow were built for speed. She was capable of 13 knots. It was a sinister necessity. The faster the crossing, the better the chance that the captive human cargo would arrive alive. The widow and her captain, Lawrence Prince, had already made one trip around the trade triangle. Now, in late winter of 1717, they arrived again in the Caribbean and unloaded a cargo of captive Africans to be sold into slavery for the colonies. Men were more highly valued, younger men who could work hard. Women were, generally speaking, less highly valued than men, and children were not valued at all. Widow's slaves were sold to the highest bidder for lucrative payments made in gold and silver. Now, crammed with this booty, she was a floating treasure chest. Slave ships left Britain, they took a cargo of trade goods to the west coast of Africa. They exchanged them for slaves. The slaves were transported to the West Indies or to colonial America, where they were sold for a very large profit. This new commerce was fueled by an explosion in the sugar, tobacco, and rum-producing industries in the colonies of the New World, the Caribbean, and Americas. To keep up with demand, the plantation owners needed slave labor to work in their fields. The slave traders of Europe saw their chance. Here's an opportunity for the French and the Spanish and the, and, and the British and the Portuguese to create this global commerce called slavery. It was all about economics. It was all about money. Payment for the slaves came in the form of gold and silver, as well as goods such as rum. The ships then returned to England. This three-legged route was known as the Trade Triangle. During the first quarter of the 18th century, European slave traders shipped more than six million Africans across the Atlantic to be sold into slavery. The widow was built for this terrible trade. December 30th, 1724. No trade yet, but our traders came on board today and informed us the people had burnt four towns of their enemies so that tomorrow we expect slaves. Liverpool said. Received on this cargo 46 men, 
34 women, 14 boys, 6 girls, and 147 chests of corn. The rest of the goods delivered on shore to Cape Coast and Accra to Mr. Harbin. William Dexter, ship's captain. Ship captains were cautioned not to buy all their slaves from one place. Africans who knew each other, who spoke the same language, were more likely to conspire and rebel. There would be maybe 25 seamen and the ship's officers. There might have been a crew of 30. And these 30 had to um, control maybe 300 men, black men and women, who were aware of being abducted and who were, in, who, were, who were desperate and who were dangerous because they were obviously waiting to seize any opportunity that was, was offered to, to rebel and to take over the ship and to kill, to kill the crew. And that, and that did happen fairly frequently. The only way that this could be contained was by a system of fear. now persuaded that I had gotten into a world of bad spirits and that they were going to kill me. Their complexions, too, differing so much from ours. Their long hair and the language they spoke, which was very different from any I had ever heard, united to confirm me in this belief. I no longer doubted my fate. I asked if we were going to be eaten by those white men with horrible looks, red faces, and long hair. Ulauda Equiana. Captains call the voyage from West Africa to the New World, the Middle Passage, the middle leg of a triangular course that began and ended in Europe. From English ports, ships sailed to Africa to trade goods for slaves, then the human cargo was taken to the Americas and traded for raw materials, which were then carried back to England and sold. The crossing from Africa to the Americas usually took 60 to 90 days, but some voyages took as long as four or even six months. Bad weather and sickness could turn any trip into a nightmare. The cramped quarters of ships being packed in such a way that a slave will be between the legs of another slave and having to lie in the feces. The lack of air, the longer this trip takes, um, the more suffocating. The surgeon, upon going between decks in the morning to examine the situation of the slaves, frequently finds several dead, and sometimes a dead and living Negro fastened by their irons together. When this is the case, they are brought upon the deck. The living Negro is disengaged and the dead one thrown overboard. Alexander Falkenbridge, ship's surgeon. There are no doubt people who went mad. Inability to communicate, 
decisions having to be made, and this person is suffering as yourself, does one help? Does one simply try to make it the best that one can alone, not knowing where am I being taken? What is my fate? Um, for weeks, months, depending what the point of origin was. together somehow made it through the nettings and jumped into the sea. Immediately another quite dejected fellow also followed their example, and I believe many more would have very soon done the same if they had not been prevented by the ship's crew, who were instantly alarmed. Ulauda Equiano. The idea, I think, was that the slave cannot be allowed to die by his own will and intention. He cannot be allowed to die voluntarily. If he's going to die, it must be at the hands of his captors, so that in that case he doesn't, you know, he doesn't spread a dangerous example. Monday, 11th December. By the favor of divine providence, made a timely discovery today that the slaves were forming a plot for insurrection. Surprised two of them attempting to get off their arms, and in their rooms found knives, stones, shot, etc., and a cold chisel. There appeared eight principally concerned in protecting the mischief, and four boys in supplying them with the above instruments. Put the boys in arms, and slightly in the thumbscrews to urge them to a full confession. Captain John Newton. We stood in arms, firing on the revolted slaves, of whom we killed some and wounded many. And many of the most mutinous leapt overboard and drowned themselves in the ocean with much resolution. James Barbo, English sailor, 1701. Often did I think many of the inhabitants of the deep much happier than myself. Every circumstance I met with served only to render my state more painful and heighten my apprehensions and my opinion of the cruelty of whites. Olaudo Equiano. The slavers, they knew at one level that these were human beings because they were obviously clearly human beings. At the same time, they were objects of profit. And those two concepts could, couldn't obviously be really reconciled, and they never were reconciled. It was just, I think, that the, 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 the humane, the, the, the sense of the humanity of these people was simply suppressed for the sake of gold. And the shocking thing is that human beings are able indefinitely to suppress the, the urgings of their common humanity. 
and to deny it for the sake of making profits. Is not the slave trade entirely a war with the heart of man? And surely that which is begun by breaking down the barriers of virtue involves in its continuance destruction to every principle and buries all sentiment in ruin. O Lauda Equiano. Because the slave ship they have for us is their madhouse and the prison system. You understand? There's been no kind of treatment for African people. And we see the result of that every time we take a census of the madhouses or the prisons of the West. African people populate those places in numbers that are far out of proportion to our presence in the population. You lock up 1.5 million African American men. You can't tell me that you have not perpetuated the institution of enslavement. If you lock up that many brothers and sisters, you have reinstituted the institution of enslavement. Because when they get out of jail, can they vote? Since that's your criteria of citizenship, can they get a good, decent job? Who's going to help them deal with the fact that they either raped or were raped by someone? Black males have caused a, uh, what shall we say, destruction of black family life. And when we look at all of the young black males who are caught up in drugs and who are caught up in dropping out of school and in the prison system, I maintain this is because of the destruction of the black father and removing him from a functional role in black family life. The school system doesn't teach them the truth about who they really are and their full potential. Now, once they know who they really are and their full potential, when they see these stereotypes, they don't connect with them. They don't see them as representing who they really are. So all those images on them in the media are, are false representations of someone who they are not. But unless they have that alternative frame of reference, if you like, to connect with, they are at risk of being what it is they are told they are. When you listen to some of our dancehall music and some of our rappers like UK, we're literally boasting. We're showing the world, look, this is how ignorant I am. You know, I want to drink this amount of whiskey each night. I want to smoke this amount of blunt each night. I want to chase this amount of women each night. In order for hip-hop records to sell in that number, who is buying it? It is middle America. It's middle England. It's the majority white community who are buying these things because they present images of black people with which they are comfortable. They're not comfortable with uh, someone like Common or The Roots or anyone who is playing, you know, authentic, intelligent music. Because that doesn't make any sense in racist middle America or racist middle England. That's not an image anyone wants to see. No one's going to be comfortable with that. But you have someone with his trousers hanging down his legs, wearing a bandana, holding his genitals, talking about, you know, how he's out on parole. This is something which is very comforting and very reassuring. All you ever see is bad news. All you see is the negative. 
You don't see, you know, anything about African civilizations, African culture, African history. As far as most people in the West know, Africans still live totally in mud huts. When you watch an MTV music videos, you're not watching a music video. It's a, a multi-million pound advertising campaign for capitalist organizations which are teaching our young people how to be fools, how to buy and how to consume products that they don't need. It's teaching them that they don't need any aspirations other than to have a baseball cap back from gold chains, that jeep where they go bounce up and down and all the other kind of nonsense that keeps them from seeing wider than the targets that have been and, and the ambitions that have been set forth for them. When I was younger, we had a sense of responsibility from a very young age. Um, this may be responsible of uh, fetching water, um, looking after the animal livestock, whether um, sweeping up the yard, catching some firewood. Um, I think these discipline that you, you gain when you're very young, in my time, helped me to hold in good stead when I can become big. Children nowadays, especially in this society, very much a lot of freedom they have. Um, we quieten them by giving them TV or games, things not really encouraging them to do anything but play and after a while try to impose responsibility after that. So they hadn't learned this ability um, of responsibility. So I think that's some of the contribution why we have problems with our children. And what we have to do is work in tandem with our young people. We've got to stop being afraid of our own children. The African proverb says, Children not taught by the past will be taught by the world. And the world got some terrible things to teach them. So teach them the legacy of the past. Teach them the great minds. Malcolm and Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer, W.B. Du Bois, Martin King, Honorable Elijah Muhammad, Sojourner Truth, Rami Nkrumah, Sekou Ture, Julius Nguyen, Yad Sanjo. We've got to teach them that and pass it to them as a legacy. Teach them the best of what it means to be African. Teach them Odu Ifa. Teach them Busia. We've got to teach them that. Then that's not going to drop from the sky. And the white man is not going to teach them that. You know what the white man does? He engages in what we call memory replacement. He lifts our memory out and put his in. That's why a lot of times black people can't remember their name. That's why they say the name is John and, and, and Stepford, uh, Rachel and Ron and all that kind of stuff. Because they can't remember their name. You ask them what philosophy is in their history. They'll remember the Greeks. They won't remember Amenemope, Patalotep. We must recover our memory. We must return to our own history and culture until we recover and reconstruct the best of our history and culture and use it to enrich and expand our lives. We'll always be impoverished and our youth will suffer as a result of that. We must leave a legacy worthy of the name industry African. Foundation of Islam under the leadership and guidance of the Honorable Salis Muhammad will celebrate the life and legacy of our forefathers who endured the unspeakable horrors of slavery. When we come back, we'll be joined by the Lost Found Nation of Islam representative 
Minister Ismail Abdul Salam. He serves as Vice President of the Lost Foundation of Islam and National Officer of AFRE, All for Reparations and Emancipation, an international NGO with consultative status in the United States. He specializes in national and international advocacy of human rights and reparations for Afro-descendants. For 22 years, Mr. Abdul Salam has been a member of the Nation of Islam, 16 of which he has served as a national officer under the direction of the Honorable Minister Silas Mohammed, and we hope you'll stay with us. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about the Black Holocaust Day of Remembrance, 2011, and reparations. You stay with us. We'll be right back. Freedom is not something that anybody can be given. Freedom is something people take, and people are as free as they want to be. James Baldwin. This is Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Grant. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground. Talk that matters. You are our mothers, you are our sisters, you are our daughters. AIDS is the leading cause of death for black women ages 25 to 34. But there are things you can do to help. Prevention is power. Get educated, get tested, get treated. Help stop AIDS. I believe in truth. I believe in truth. I believe in truth. I believe in truth. Truth Works Network. On TruthWorks Network, conversations in deep waters. Hi, I'm Dr. Deborah Napier, and I would love to have you join me on TruthWorks Network here. And I am restoring hope, healing through connection at TruthWorks Network. This is our phone. It would be my honor if you would join TruthWorks Network. Hi, I'm Denise Bowles, and I'd like you to join me on TruthWorks Network. Live talk programming, TruthWorks Network, premiering February 1st with Dr. Deborah, Denise Bowles, and Alpha. We're working truth Monday through Friday at TruthWorks Network Radio. Come get your truth on. TruthWorks Network. And we thank you so much for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Uh, Tonight, uh, in this segment, we're going to be talking with you about 
the lost foundation of Islam and the Black Holocaust Day of Remembrance, which will be held on Saturday, April 10th, I'm sorry, May 1st, at um, in Mount Rainier, Maryland. And our guest is, I've been calling him Minister, <laughs> Minister Ismail Abdul Salam. My brother, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Uh, thank you, my sister. I want to thank you for uh, having me tonight as as one of your guests. Uh, let me uh, officially open up to you and uh, to the Muslim audience and our original greetings of peace and paradise. We do uh, greet everyone as assalamu alaikum, which means peace be unto you. I want to thank well, you. And those allow, my brother. Well, thank you. Thank you, my sister. Thank you and to your audience. And please extend how honored we are at our common ground to once again host the Lost Foundation of Islam. Uh, my beloved brothers, Minister Najee Muhammad and um, the Honorable Minister Silas Muhammad. Um, <clears throat> tell us about uh, the intent and what we can expect at the Black Holocaust Day of Remembrance. I don't know if you've been listening to the program up until now, but what we have done is uh, taken the opportunity for a teachable moment to get our audience prepared uh, to think through the history of the transatlantic slave process and what it meant to to be brought into a foreign uh, land and soil and the injuries that were concomitant with it. So we are ready to hear about what can be expected uh, on May 1st, and um, and certainly we embrace and am honored by your invitation uh, to come together on this very, very important day. Yes, well, what you will hear uh, um, tomorrow is a continual uh, effort uh, from Minister Najee Muhammad, who is the minister in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, he has done a continual And who has been a work. guest a number of times here at yes. our common ground. Yes. Uh, well, if you're familiar with him, you will know that uh, he is a dedicated servant of the Honorable Silas Muhammad, uh, uh, giving the life-giving teachings, but also making sure that our people uh, remember and what uh, we say and what others may say is never forget uh, that terrible history uh, uh, that we know as the as we know as the Black Holocaust uh, in Kiswahili, it is referred to uh, as the Mayafa, uh, which basically was the uh, transatlantic slave trade was led to millions of our brothers and sisters, our family members, our ancestors to be brought from Africa, to be murdered, uh, to be lost from their culture, to be lo lose their religion, their identity. A whole history was lost. In fact, a whole continent was destroyed as a result of this Holocaust. And even today, our people suffer or have lingering effects of this slave trade and what the symbol symbolic reason for being done at this particular time 
Traditionally, the holiday is celebrated around the April 1st weekend, but this year the minister did it uh, uh, May 1st for his own reasons. But around this particular time in the spring, but particularly April 1st, is the symbolic day that we recognize in the North Foundation of Islam, the beginning of the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, by an English slave trader by the name of John Hawkins. John Hawkins was an English slave trader out of England who was commissioned to to uh, take slaves out of Africa. And that date was April 1st, 1555. That is the date that we use to uh, recognize the beginning of the slave trade. So in an effort that our people, our children, and the world never forgets uh, that date, April 1st, 1555, uh, we, the believers of the Honorable Salas Muhammad, have established a national holiday uh, to make sure that our ancestors and that history is never forgotten. So tomorrow's guest uh, will be Minister Ishmael Al-Islam, Minister out of Philadelphia, and he will give a talk around the issue, making sure that our people have a thorough history and knowledge about what happened to us and what this does, it galvanizes us to continue the work of the Lost Time Nation of Islam, which is to elevate our people, to get our people up, and to get our people back restored to our history. And that's part of what reparations is about. I, I, I want to stay focused on, on, on the topic and not too far, but I want people to understand that rep, where reparations is also about money. Uh, it's about being restored, and it's also about uh, also exercising what is known as self-determination. So in that process of self-determination, what we are doing as a people is demonstrating our right to define and develop our own culture, and that is what the minister is doing, is showing our right to self-determine as a people to establish our own culture and make sure that our culture and history is never forgotten. So you will get a thorough history and knowledge of what has happened to us and how we need to continue to restore ourselves as a people. Now, let me, um, for people in our audience who may not be familiar with the, I, I know that this is, how many years have you been doing this now? Uh, we've been doing this. Uh, the minister will come on and give me. Uh, I know it's been over twenty. A years. long time. <laughs> a long time. Almost, a long time. Almost, almost since I've been in radio. Okay. And yes, that's ma'am. since nineteen eighty, eighty um, seven, eighty eight. Some during that time. But for those of um, our audience who are not familiar with the loss. Foundation of Islam. Give us some background about who you are and why you seem to be the leadership on this particular very important. 
I see the remembrance, the Black Holocaust remembrance, as a process, as a healing, as a moment, an opportunity for us to come together as as Africans in America to to help each other heal and to have more insight into who we are. Right. Well, the the lost foundation of Islam uh, is is uh, we are under the leadership of the Honorable Silas Muhammad. Uh, Silas Muhammad was the spiritual son, uh, is the spiritual son of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, may peace be upon him. Uh, In the nation of Islam, uh, we have been advocates for human rights and reparations since since the beginning. We've been advocates for reparations uh, since the beginning of our founding. Uh, It is in in our program, in the Muslim program, and you can find that on the back of the Muhammad Speaks newspaper that we advocate for our own land and it's a separate territory that we can establish a nation which we can call our own as a result of what has been done to us. Mr. Muhammad, the Honorable Silas Muhammad, has been uh, advocating and working in the United Nations for over 16 years. While there have been many leaders... Uh, who came? Who who have been motivated, uh, influenced by Messenger Elijah Muhammad to do the human rights work? Uh, Malcolm X, uh, members of various nationalist organizations who were inspired by the Nation of Islam to do the work. Uh, it was actually the Honorable Salaf Muhammad who actually took up the actual work to go inside the United Nations and begin to advocate for Afro-descendants in the United Nations. Uh, he would deliver his uh, first intervention. We began to study there about 1996, uh, so when we began to start making intervention. Uh, our first oral intervention was in 1998, and since that time we have been working uh, in the working group on minorities for 10 years. But since that time, uh, we've been working the United Nations has changed. And the working group, particular work that was done in the working group, why it was complete, the working group was dismantled. However, uh, the Honorable Salas Muhammad and the Lost Foundation of Islam is ever committed to that process of us being restored and the process of actually us getting reparations. And you say, why the Nation of Islam? Well, Reparations, why it is a political movement, it is also a spiritual movement. Um, reparations can, is identified in the Bible, in Genesis fifteen thirteen, where it says that God said to Abraham, to know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and they shall serve and be afflicted for 400 years. And it says afterwards, uh, God would judge and they shall come out with great substance. Well, that great substance uh, we've identified uh, to be reparations, but also more importantly than the great substance is the fact as it relates to uh, the black Holocaust and remembrance. In relative to that 400 years, it was our people, black people, who were enslaved and afflicted in a strange land for over 400 years right here in America. There have 
there is and has been no other people in our in the history of the world that has spent 400 years in a strange land and have been afflicted for 400 years. I know uh, there's an old story or myth about Jews being in bondage in Egypt. However, there's no facts about that. Uh, even though the Egyptians were great uh, 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 writers in history on the uh, hieroglyph and writing on the papyrus, there's no history of a people being in bondage for 400 years in Egypt. However, uh, there is a, a great history, a massive history of our people being in bondage and being taken out of Africa in a strange land that was not theirs and serving and afflicting for over 400 years. And as a result of that uh, prophecy, that writing in the Bible, we take up claim that that prophecy is no other, uh, uh, has no other relationship than other to the black man, woman, child here in America, us. And so we follow along that prophecy in order to make that prophecy a reality because it says that God said, and we believe that after our suffering and after all of our cries and after all of the, the pain that our ancestors endured, we believe that uh, uh, that God is just and that a just God would judge those people who serve us. So we find that prophecy, we find that history, and we look at that history, and we use it uh, to identify ourselves as a divine people because it says that those people were divine people. We also look at America as a modern-day Egypt, as was those slave children during the time of Pharaoh and the time of Moses. And as was in the time of Moses and the time of Pharaoh, according to that prophecy, those children had to leave, and Egypt was destroyed. And as we can see a parallel today between uh, uh, Egypt and America, we see the destruction here in America because of what America has done, uh, not just to those slave children, but what America has done to the world. So in that parallel of Egypt being destroyed and the destruction here in the United States of what is happening in America, it's only fitting that our, the reparations case uh, 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 continue and that we continue the healing process while we are also healing uh Part of the healing is also fighting. Uh, while we're healing, I don't want, when I say healing, I don't want people to think that when we mean healing, we're just laying in the hospital bed. Which is just passive, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that you know, and, and, and it's a passive state where we're healing, we're sick, we're laying in the bed and we're not doing anything. Well, uh, or we're looking at healing from a, from, a, from a perspective that the more that we do, the more that we okay. soldier, the more that we fight, that becomes a healing process because in that process, we become whole again as a people. And that's what is going to make us whole is what we do and how we self-determine. Reparations mm -hmm. to give us reparations, that will help. That's what the, uh, uh, that's what the, not what the victim has to do to make himself whole. Uh, that's what the perpetrator has to do. Uh, 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 as uh, as part of the recompense and the redress of what is owed, but what the victim has to do, the victims of, of the act of this Holocaust have be, has have to begin to heal themselves by number one standing themselves up, 
and fighting mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. that which caused the particular condition. Uh, mm-hmm. And Mr. Muhammad has been a, a very, 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 very uh, straightforward in, in causing that healing inside of us by causing us to be whole again as a people, and, and not just as a people, but as a nation of people. Because just like that prophecy also says uh, that we would get reparations, that we would be restored as a nation of people. So that being fitting in terms of why the nation of Islam, because number one, the lost foundation of Islam, why it's a spiritual movement. It's also mm-hmm. reparations is a spiritual movement. It's also a political movement. It's also a social movement. And what people need to understand about reparations and this healing process, this is ordained by God. Because in that prophecy, he said, God said no of a surety. So just like it was known of a surety that we would spend 400 years in slavery and that surely did happen, we should know of a surety that God has judged and is judging today and that you can see the judgment today when you see uh, over 300 storms come through the South and cause such havoc and murder right here in America. That's not that that that, that that's 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 God right there. When you see the stock market, when you see the economy, and you see what's happening in the world, that's that's the sign of God right there. Now these things are I'm just not making these things up. Just like I'm not making slavery up. These are actual facts. So just like these are actual facts, so is reparations. But one well, of the things me, that we let me, let me, sister, I'm sorry, you got me Let going. me say about this healing because I think it's very important. I think many people in our audience uh, ha- had the experience of the Million Man March and the Million Absolutely. Woman March. And Absolutely. those were spiritual and healing processes and healing really is not a passive act. I am a cancer survivor. When yes, you ma'am. are sick and you are really sick, you have to fight it every minute. Amen. I know how to beat cancer. Yes, ma'am. So when you are healing yourself, you have to be an active participant Thank in the you, healing ma'am. process. Thank you. And one of the things that really, I, I, I just, I watch, for instance, my Jewish friends. I lived in a predominantly Jewish community for almost 12 years. Yes, ma'am. And I watch how truly and deeply Jews are serious about never forgetting what happened to them in their genocide. Yes, ma'am. And I pray, Brother Minister, I pray every day that our people begin to understand that we come from a lot of deep pain and that when we see our children killing each other, when we see our babies having babies because they're searching for love in all the wrong places, when I see our children not being able to read and they can't strive and they can't achieve. And when I see our people defacing and marginalizing and minimizing who we are as a people and how worthy we are, we know that we need a day. 
We know yes, that ma'am. we need to cover all the mirrors and call on every ancestor that died so that we may thrive. And all Absolutely. we're doing, Brother Minister, is we're surviving. And we are a people who in our genetic makeup, that's why we can't be satisfied. No matter what we get, we still no, have ma'am. to come back to the place where we got on the boat. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. We got. We, yes, go ahead, sister. You you were saying a thought. I, I didn't want to interrupt you. I I just I I just wanted to say that to people, which is why in our first hour, we not only looked at the injury and the genocide of our people, we also looked at the continuing spiritual genocide under which we live in America with two Ks. Absolutely, absolutely. And you are providing us a day. I mean, we we should be coming to D.C. by the millions. We should be coming back to, but not only just D.C., because this is a national holiday, and definitely because that's where the focus point is. But I'm sure that the brothers and sisters in D.C., because tomorrow everyone definitely in the Washington area uh, uh, needs to be at the meeting tomorrow at 2 p.m. It start opens the doors open at 1 p.m. at Joe's Emporium at 3309 Bunker Hill and Mount Rainer. Everyone needs to be there to hear Minister Ishmael Al-Islam. But if you can't be there, because I know your radio program is picking up uh, 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 the Internet and it's throughout the country and throughout the world, we need to use this day where no matter where we are, we need to remember that horrific period and moment Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. our history. And we need to not only do it uh, uh, in in an active place in the minute, we need to do it in our homes. You mentioned the Jews. One of the things that they do that causes them to never forget, they make sure that they have this conversation at their dinner tables. They make sure that they have this conversation in their schools. They make sure they have this conversation everywhere they meet. There's no place short where the Jews do not have a conversation about their history and their Holocaust. So it's not just one day, even though it's one day that we come together and have a central focus, but it's every day and every moment that we cannot forget what happened to black people, Afro-descendants, right here, these wilderness hills of North America and the Western uh, Hemisphere. We also need to know that what happened to us is the same that what happened to our people in Jamaica, in the Caribbean, in South America. They also need to know that we are not alone as 13 million here in America, that we are connected with 300 million people throughout the diaspora. Who suffered. They also need to know that before we came to America, that we were in the Caribbean and our families and our ancestors were sent out to South America, to Central America, to Canada, to North America, and that we are those same people even though we speak different languages, even though we speak French, even though we speak Spanish, Portuguese, English, that we are the same people even though we are different 
we are mixed in various tribes, even with some indigenous, even some Caucasian, but we share a common history. We need to never forget what it took for our ancestors to survive this 400-year-old period. So, yes, this is a moment in Washington that we can all focus on, like the Million Man March, like the Million Woman March, like the Million Youth March, like the many marches of Asa, uh, uh, A. Philip Randolph, like the marches of the Civil Rights, like many of the other marches, like the call to unity uh, that happened last weekend. This is a moment in time that we cannot forget, and we have to use these moments as a way to heal, as you would say, but to activate a new spirit and a new life which calls about the critical change that we need today. One of the things why we can't forget but we also can't go to sleep about is that the world is changing. The political climate of the world is changing. You can see what's happening in North Africa. You can see what's happening uh, uh, in Japan and throughout Europe. What about the Afro-descendants today? How are we going to reshape ourselves for this new paradigm in this future today? What well, that, that is based upon how we look at our history and how we utilize our history to shape what we must do in the future. So while we do focus on the past and we use the past as a springboard, it's also a critical focus on the future and what we must do so that we may survive uh, uh, mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. future. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I think that, and we had a caller earlier in our first segment um, talking about the efforts that have been made through H.R. 40 and other venues uh, around the issue of reparations um, <clears throat> is that and the point that I, I wanted to make is that when we understand the African Holocaust, when we understand that the very spirit of the ans- of our ancestors remain with us, then we can through this remembrance begin to really have a rational understanding of what reparations is all about that when a when a people is essentially almost wiped out of their culture their language their belief system that remembering that helps us figure out our worth and what it means to struggle for human rights uh, I, I think that you've made some 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 wonderful points, uh, my brother. I want to take a break, and when we come back, if you'd be so kind uh, as to take some some callers, we're yes, talking ma'am. with Minister Ismail Abdul Salam, who serves as the Vice President of the Lost Foundation of Islam, and he is a national officer for All for Reparations and Emancipation which is an international NGO, non-governmental organization, for those who don't know what an NGO is, with consultative status in the United States. Uh, He specializes in national... 
I mean, the United Nations. Thank you. He specializes in national and international advocacy of human rights and reparations for Afro descendants. We are talking with him about tomorrow. The members of the Lost Nation, Lost Foundation of Islam, under the leadership of the Honorable Silas Mohammed, will observe the Black Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh, for those of you who are in the Washington, D.C., and Maryland, and Virginia area, this event will take place at Joe's Emporium, which is located at 3309 Bunker Hill Road in Mount Rainier, um, Maryland. If you'd like more information about how to get there, etc., you can call. You can write to momentoftruth at hotmail.com. Or you can go to their website, which is um, com. You're listening to Our Common Ground at Blog Talk Radio. When we come back, we'll take your calls for Minister Ismail Abdul Salam. Thank you for being with us tonight. You've been had. You've been took. You've been hoodwinked. Bamboozled. Let us spread. Run on my. Word up. Hi, this is Maya, and you are listening to Our Common Ground, Janet Grimm, talk radio that matters. Harriet Tubman, respect. Malcolm X, respect. W.E.B., Du Bois, respect. Reverend Martin Luther King, respect. Sojourner Truth, respect. Word up. It's all about respect. by the nation, the Lost Foundation of Islam. Brother Minister uh, Ismail Abdul Salam is with us, and we're going to go to our phones. Thank you for calling, 954. You're on the air. I, sur- I, I respect you. As-salamu alaykum. Alaykum salam. Sabah al there. To the Brother Minister, um, Quick questions. I, I was a member of being part Brother of the... Arande, thank you for your call. Yes, thank you. I'll try and be quick because I know people are waiting. And uh, I remember the reparations uh, proceedings that they were having in New York. It was not too long after Howard Beach riots there. And the quick questions I want to ask is that um, our involvement in Libya 
and what is actually happening today in Africa, and wouldn't there be or shouldn't there be a move to set ourselves up the way the nation had illustrated years ago over its paper, Shaking Hands Over the Globe, about how we need to go back and re-fortified ourselves. And I've lived in Africa, you know, several different places. So um, I'd like to hear your perspective on that. And people seem not to want to do that, and, and why? Because we almost just about maxed ourselves out here. Yes, yes. Uh, thank you, uh, my brother. I appreciate that that thought uh, and that comment. Uh, uh, as it relates to uh, Libya, uh and, and, and there was many things that your question uh, stimulated in, in my mind, uh, but what I do want to say, uh, as Libya is concerned, uh, the people in Libya are engaged uh, in a civil rights, a uh, civil war, uh, and the people are fighting to establish their civil rights. Uh, it's quite different uh, than what we are experiencing uh, here as Afro-descendants. Uh, our battle uh, and our engagement is for the establishment of our human rights. Uh, civil, a battle of civil rights uh, before the establishment of human rights uh, is, uh, is, is not the proper way uh, for us uh, to engage ourselves in the uh, on the international political uh, forum, uh, one should remember, and I'm, I'm cautioning to our people because there, I see many of our people who have taken up uh, the concern of Libya, and I'm very concerned about the people of Libya. Uh, but keep in mind that why our struggles, uh, why they are struggling. Our struggles are different in that they are fighting a civil war amongst their own people. Uh, the the advent of slavery, which brought us out of Africa into America, uh, and the loss of language, culture, religion, and identity uh, was lost. Uh, and it being that it's, uh, it was a global event, and our human rights were uh, destroyed during slavery and never restored. It's important for us to keep in mind that our battle and what Mr. Muhammad has directed us toward is the reestablishment and gaining of our human rights because uh, you must have your human rights restored uh, before you are be, you have to be considered a human being before you even have civil rights. Civil rights are for people who have established human rights, civil rights. So we definitely... Uh, look at the Libya situation and we look at Africa, knowing that uh, many of our uh, brothers and sisters and the political help that we need is in Africa, so it's important for us to merge uh, some of our political uh, resources in the case for reparations and in the case for the establishment of our human rights. It's important that we reach out to our African brothers and sisters and that we uh, uh, update them, seek their assistance to help us in the United Nations and to help us globally to reestablish our human rights uh, and to help us to self-determine. The reason why I'm using the term self-determination, 
is because in the term of in the concept of self determination as a people, uh the people have a right to determine their own identity, whether it be political uh their political identity. And in establishing one's political identity, it may mean that one could uh relocate or change their station globally, uh i.e. migration uh, to another place and to establish themselves in a different place uh, uh, politically, socio-politically, and globally. So, therefore, Africa is a place that we should look at uh, because, as you say, things uh, over here, uh, some believe may never change, will never change, and that we have to start to look at our future and knowing that we need a place where we can come up and, and establish ourselves to to practice human rights, to practice humanity, it may be that we would have to look abroad, whether it be the Caribbean, uh, whether it be South America, whether it be Africa. That's a choice that we as a people need to make and can make. So reaching out and utilizing the resources and helping our brothers and sisters in Africa is key. However, we cannot put someone else's struggle before our own. We have a history. Of, Thank you, brother. Uh, Thank where you, we brother might, minister. Yes, and, and, and we have a, we tend to want to put everybody else's suffering uh, before ours. And uh, as, as you were saying, um, um, when you're healing uh, uh, and you're at war, healing is a, is, is, is a war-like process. You can't uh, minimize your own plight for the plight of others. You may be sympathetic for that what's going on in Africa, what's going on in Japan, what's going on in other places. However, the primary concern of my involvement is my own people right here in America. I must take that as a, prim, a primary concern because we know if we don't, if we're not concerned about ourselves, no one else will. I don't want to take the other long part of it problem. is. Uh, the other part of it is if within the framework in which we define the problems that we face uh, as a black nation in America, whether or not it is practical to expect that families are willing to give up their investment mm-hmm. in uh, what they see as their home. Okay. And I think that when you look at uh, the transatlantic slave disorder that we have. And if for those of you who are listening and you want to uh, get a reference on that with Dr. Joy uh, DeGru, uh you can by doing a Google on post-traumatic uh, slave disorder. Um, that That's not going to be a practical strategy. It may be a solution for some, uh, but it's not going to, to be a practical solution. And for those of you who are listening, I do want to remind you that the Black Holocaust Day of Remembrance is tomorrow, May 1st, in Mount Rainier, Maryland, and we've posted um, the website, but you also can do um, can go to tomyrepair.com and get information about the event uh, tomorrow. The other thing, uh, Brother Minister, that I did want to, before we go to our next caller, also emphasize 
is that every one of you can decide tomorrow morning that you are going to have a special dinner with your family, and it is going to be a dinner which is it honors our ancestors and our journey to where we are today. And uh, I do want to thank you for being with us. It looks like we're not going to have much time but uh, to talk about reparations, but if you begin the journey with your family and your friends tomorrow, wherever you are, if you begin the journey of studying this journey, then you can come to some conclusions about the validity. And there are I know that there are those of you out there who doubt the validity of the issue of reparations for Africans in America and Africans in the Caribbean. But you should really re- Visit that. Even if you do nothing but go and do a Google search for HR 40, sponsored by John, uh, Representative John Conyers of uh, Michigan. Uh, we're going to go uh, to Brother Minister. Did I just lose you? Um, we're going to go to one 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 one. You have. Uh, thank you for calling. Thank You're you. on the air. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. I, I am wondering how long everyone here will uh, continue with the brother minister to bitch and moan about their plight in life. You fucking. Well, that's what we have. So, um, one of the things that I really do encourage is that you and your family begin. We have Brother Minister uh, Ismail Abdul Salam uh, back on the on the line, but that you begin to develop a a, a ritual in your own home about teaching your children how to honor and participating in honoring those who came before us those who made this journey. Brother Minister, we don't have very much uh, time left, but I do want to extend to you uh, an invitation to come back. Every time so uh, we've had Minister uh, Naji uh, Mohammed on, we've had to invite him to come back as well yes. to, to continue this discussion. But we want you to know that uh, here at Our Common Ground, we're going to continue, and maybe next year uh, it will be our time to join you uh, for your for your a day of remembrance uh, in the D.C. area. Yes, well, thank you so much for having me. I want to thank you and your listeners. Uh, you've been such a gracious host to 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 the Lost Sound Nation of Islam and myself. I want to thank the minister for his invitation of having me to address uh, uh, the audience. And I want to uh, stand also following up what you said, that we, no matter where we are, that we take some time out to remember uh, the, the African Holocaust and that we take that time uh, by going to the meeting tomorrow if you're in the D.C. area, but regardless of where you are, that you take some time with your family to talk about the history so that we may never forget. And I certainly extend um, my greetings 
of of grace and and faith and um well wishes to you and your family in the of the lost foundation of islam and uh i'm sure that we're going to get the audio of minister naji mohammed's uh keynote speech what is america's greatest sin that is yes. going to um uh, be the subject uh, tomorrow at the event. And thank you so much. And I will certainly give you um, uh, a call so that we yes, can uh, talk about your work at the UN and the issue of reparations. And I am just honored to have such an opportunity to have talked with you tonight. Thank you. Thank you, much. Thank you. Thank you, sir. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to close this up and tell you some stuff that's going to happen on air this week um, and hope that you will be willing to, to join us. You're listening to Our Common Ground. That was our discussion with our brother, Minister Ismail Abdul Salam of the Lost Found Nation of Islam. Alpha's here with me tonight, and we're going to close up when we come back. This is okay. right there. So there's a number of domestic burning, domestic issues that we have not seen as strong as human rights commitment. And what we say human rights commitment is, is that the U.S. government will take a holistic approach to addressing those domestic uh, civil rights, civil liberties issues, and using human rights as a way to, to promote and uh, protect people's rights um, on, the, on, the, on the number of issues. The stimulus plan, for example, has been... Uh, has been an, is at the center of, of the government's attention, and yet we haven't seen the stimulus plan used, or at, le- at least have not seen enough of how the U.S. government will be using that to promote um, uh, full equality in the distribution of those funds so that uh, people who are um, uh, disadvantaged, poor, uh, and, and, and community of color would be receiving those funds and would be able to, to improve the quality of This is our common ground. Thank you for being with us. We'll be right back. And, Alpha, that was uh, um, a good uh, but short. I mean, I, I just... Um, we just hit on the edges about what this event means uh, to our community. And we want to thank all of you. We want to thank Brother Brock for his call. And we didn't get to your question, Brother Brock. We want to tell you uh, that we have to continue to be vigilant. Um, I'm not going to, on this program, um, be acceptable or open to intolerance and ugliness. We are here to speak truth to power, not ignorant to the un- unwilling. Is that right? Is that good, Alpha? Well, I've enjoyed the program, uh, but <laughs> what is, I've taken note of more than anything is the willingness of people to enter uh, either the chat room or call in with such bigotry mm-hmm. and such hatred because mm-hmm. that is, you know, that is cowardly fear. That yeah, we got to go. <laughs> <laughs> you got to go. They got to go. 
And don't forget to join us on Monday night. Alpha and I will be doing a live show on the issues having to do with um, the birthers and the tea bigots. We hope you'll you'll join us. Thank you so much. I'm Janice Graham, and he's Alpha. been another episode of Our Common Ground. Thank you for joining us tonight, speaking truth to power and ourselves, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time, Our Common Ground, Saturday, 10 p.m. I'll be listening for you. Thank you to our many listeners, callers, and our special guest tonight. And of course, a special thanks to Alpha of the Alpha Show, who is heard at TruthWorks Network each Saturday at 3 p.m. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.